Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. Today, we begin a discussion of the 13 assumptions that identity's personhood dharma is based upon. We've touched upon these ideas mostly before, but not gone through them in this more structured and thorough way. In this episode, we cover the first five, which I'll generally summarize, that we're emotive beings first, the four elements of human behavior, that there's no such thing as a negative emotion, the need we have to feel felt as children, and the architecture of the emotional body. Thanks so much for listening. Greetings and welcome forward, everybody. I'm quite confident this is episode 88, which is a fun number. Two infinity signs, very auspicious in the east. Eight, very, very lucky number. A uh, very lucky number. Very lucky. Four, on the other hand, is a very unlucky number because in several of those languages, the the word for four is the same as for death, which is really, really? interesting. She in a... Japanese and I think Chinese as well. So they when they use four, like I know from Aikido, they don't call fourth degree black belt shidan. They, they use a different word for four called uh, yondan, uh, yon, uh, which is uh, a great example of the ridiculousness of superstition because it's like, well, we're not going to use this the number for four that's a synonym with death. We'll, we'll use a different word that is not a synonym with death. It's like, well... <laughs> as if as if the sound or the written thing of the language changes reality yeah. you know? it's just like in the old buildings in the u.s where there's they skip the 13th floor yeah it's like, exactly they go to the 14th floor is the 13th floor a, a four-year-old right. could tell you that <laughs> but no 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 it's not 13th or in airplanes i've been in airplanes where they yeah, skip the 13th same. row yeah. yeah that's right so well yeah. where you that's the use of the mental body to like not focus on the reality of like you can't avoid having a 13th row no matter what you call it sorry i yeah i just had a, a picture of a, a um a diagram of uh of uh, the for the uh, say a 16 floor building and an acetate a, a a sheet of acetate is over it uh and this acetate nullifies makes number 14 uh 13 and that that is such a good metaphor for how we are conditioned that language uh, uh, affects reality ex- instead of affects the perception of reality. Yeah, uh, right. Because uh, and, if and we're that, mind first, then we can yes. use language to change reality, which right. is the basis of a lot of paradigms. But if we're not <laughs> mind first, then we're just playing games. Right. Uh, I I remember uh, exactly the same uh, dynamic was happening with a person in my past who was absolutely sure if he found the right mental formula and will, he could shapeshift. And uh, I tried to get him to see that the mental body and the will body are down line of reality, and you can't make an abstraction or an energy that is down line of the actual essence of reality to change the fabric of reality and uh he went away quite quickly after that um so yeah it's quite a blow like to the mind that wants to yeah. see th- yeah you know it in in um just like the most in the simplest terms it's the the you know the ego mind or the shadow or the protector or whatever we want to call it depends on the paradigm it's it always thinks the solution is 
escaping, changing, distorting, or otherwise going away from reality. Right. And the right. answer is always going more into reality. And it like it never fails. I was just talking to a, a business client this morning about money. And uh, she was saying, uh, oh, I'm not good with numbers. So, you know, I, I don't think I should be the CFO. And I said, did you finish fifth grade? And she said, yeah. <laughs> I said, then, you know, you're good enough with numbers to, to be uh, to manage the finances of this business. Because and I see this like literally nine and a half times out of 10 people's objections to uh, or their excuse um, for not being able to manage money well, they say, I'm not good with numbers. And then I demonstrate to them, uh, and I really like doing it, it's fun, that it has absolutely nothing to do with numbers. That's blaming the numbers. I said, what it actually has to do with is they're, they're, the numbers are just representations of reality. And right. there's, there's stories behind those numbers. When you look at yeah. you know a productive right. labor percentage of 25%, what does that tell you? Oh, it tells mm -hmm. us that uh, you know we're, this department's not very well managed. And oh, it starts telling you stories, right? And then you can ask questions and start looking at those things. And then you'll be confronted with the real stories behind the numbers that are producing the numbers. And that's inevitably what people don't want to look at. They don't want to look at how much they spend on clothing in a month or how those $6 lattes add up at the end of a year. They don't yeah. want to look at that. And But they say, I'm not good at numbers. Well, can you add a $6 latte and multiply it times 365? <laughs> Actually, you could get a calculator to do that for you. So don't tell me you're not good with numbers. You just don't right. want to face the reality of it because then you would feel something that you don't want to feel. And that's really the issue. Well, what an interesting segue. Perfectly. Yeah. Uh, uh, I want to say, Joseph, for the listeners that um, we're going to be doing, uh, for the first time, a deep dive in the actual treatment protocols or dharma of identity in its three hoods, as we colloquially refer to them as personhood, sagehood, and sainthood. In other words, uh, we talk about, we've been talking about it and referring to it, you know, many dozens of times, uh, but I, wanted, I want to give a deep dive tutorial in uh, what actually how do we how do we how is what we do different than psychology directly what's what's our process and I and uh, so I, I want to go into the steps of the treatment protocols how to become uh, to answer the question who am I in personhood what am I in sagehood and why am I in sainthood so uh, part one and part two will probably take two parts for each hood so the next six will be giving uh, people an actual um, uh, demonstration in a couple of ways. And I know you'll help me with that. A demo. Uh, okay. Yeah, a demo of, of what it means to, um, to uh, uh, live into uh, a certain moment in transmutation, uh, for example, in personhood. At any rate, uh, what I want to start with today is uh, exactly the way it unfolded paradigmatically for me. Um, what I was always uh, um, aggravated, annoyed by, is that uh, different paradigms, since we're not taught, as you said last time, was beautiful to what you said, that we're not taught to think par paradigmatically, that paradigms, when they're not recognized by the inceptors or the traditions as paradigms in a very specific way, they'll immediately go into, well, here's what we do, instead of Here's why we do what we do first, the premises. 
and here's our frame for reality such that this is why we do it yeah exactly inclusion that exactly they go into the content it's very annoying so what i'd have to do when i after i unloaded or downloaded this paradigms framework then i got interested in how other paradigms uh i didn't look at anything before i did that i just these just fell out of me and uh it's annoying to have to read what they do to then i have to infer what their paradigmatic <laughs> assumptions are yeah and that gets easier over time but it's it's yeah. not it, it's especially difficult sometimes when they're not really clear themselves yes that's right yeah like the paradigmatic assumptions of judaism for example uh the right. metaphysics are really quite dilute and if i think mm -hmm. if you asked a hundred rabbis a lot of different <laughs> questions you might get 20 or 30 different pictures of reality out of them because it's not yeah. clear but it's a fun skill like guess the guess the paradigm from which they're coming and then and then when you say oh i see so like for example that we're mental beings first is one of the very common assumptions yes. behind many paradigms yes and then they'll say a bunch of stuff and they'll be like, oh, I see. You're making an assumption that we're at root mental beings. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, I don't think that. But <laughs> but, but they, they do. They, <laughs> they do. have They're to. not even aware of their paradigmatic yeah. assumptions. Yeah. Anyway, it was really annoying to me. So what I want to start with today, we're going to work, work with personhood, which this is the order, the ideal order of um, transmutation, personhood first, which cleans up the motives for then seeking spirit, spiritual access as deeper um in sagehood and sainthood and that, i'm the, sorry i have to stop you right there that's a really important thing you just casually said oh okay the, the motives for seeking spirituality i want to underline that we could talk for an hour just about that but yeah uh, mm -hmm. uh with especially with sagehood enlightenment um and but also for sainthood if you don't clean up the personhood motives there's going to inevitably uh, be a hidden motive to escape your um, yes. Childhood wounds, reality, dualistic reality itself, the human theater, all of that. And if, if to the degree that's there and unprocessed, then you have a protector who becomes God realized if they do, mm. or a protector who becomes enlightened if they do. And that is giving a machine gun to a child. You do not want to have to dig out of that mess. Oh, a beautiful way to say that. And, and another frustrating thing exactly about that is that now in Diamond Heart and Waking Down, uh, these kinds of paradigms out there that employ some sort of psychological uh, chapter uh, to the processing, um, they, they, uh, they, do, they don't really um, specify um, when, when they when they take you in there, they'll have language around, well, you can't use this to escape. But those, when they say that, they're coming from a mental body first, the I that wants mm -hmm. to do work uh, is a function of the way that um, the, the body-mind cathects outer experience and represents it as an inner illusory I. So that, that all, all of the I is comprised of mentality uh, uh, in, in, in sagehood uh, um, dharmas. So they'll put language and say, well, you can't use this to escape, but, but that assumption alone that we're mental beings first, right. which Buddhism holds and modern empiricism holds, which is why they're best friends forever, BFFs. They're both express, expressly atheistic. So that's a good example of that. So way, what I determined, I, I, I just had to do, I had to lay out the framework, the assumptions of reality. There's 13 of them, interestingly for personhood 
such that um, you can right away, if you hit, read these 13 uh, and 10 of them just completely rub you the wrong way, identity is not likely uh, a, a paradigm for you to explore. Nor should we just you. call the last one the 14th just to uh, caretake the tristodecophobic among our audience? I didn't even <laughs> um, get that we were... Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by the. We 14th. were talking about the 13th floor, skipping the 13th floor. Oh, yes. I, I didn't even. I forgot we were going to talk about a list of 13 things. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. So to allay your fears, we've, yes. we've actually added a, a, a placebo uh, step, which is the 14th, which is just enjoy your life at the end, so that it's not 13. Yeah. Uh, he's he's being ironic right now, folks. Yeah. Just so you know, because. Yeah. You, Joseph, your field is so sincere. Even when you're ironic, sometimes I have to remind people you're making a joke. It's uh, probably one of the reasons why we don't have 13 months because there are actually 13 cycles 13 of the moon months. in the year. Yes, but yeah. not 12. It's even and they months, and they months. had to and, and that's why ast astrologically they had to dump the ara ar arachna. Uh, what was yeah, it? The, the arachne, the spider. Arachne, the spider. Mm -hmm. There, there was 14, uh, but the 13th one or the 14th the 13th one was left off when we went to the roman calendar way back when yeah. oh so anyway there's 13 and we're proud of it how about that yes okay right so on. so if if you if we're going to go through these frameworks and um each one of these 13 aspects uh lay the ground for why we do what we do in the treatment protocol in the quote unquote uh, emoto soulful psychological way of preparing our, our, our personhood such that we won't seek escape or atonement, uh, to escape uh, uh, into the non-dual or atonement with some divine being, that you have to be whole in a much deeper way to be ready to actually do sagehood and sainthood spiritual expansions. So, all right, first one is should go pretty quickly here. We've talked about this one the most. Um, the first assumption We've always been emotive beings first, willful beings second, mental beings third, and physical beings fourth. This is in itself paradigm shattering. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 if, if embodied in transmutation, transmutational dharma, it literally changes your inner and outer reality, perceptions of reality and definitions of reality. It's never been offered before. Uh, there's a Frenchman that back in the 80s, I forget his name now, who who was trying to sell that same idea. He, he had it he had it pretty well. Uh, he didn't have a dharma to go along with it, that, that we're emotional beings before anything else. And uh, there's actually, this is supported by some physiologists, I think we've mentioned in another podcast, that we are emotively reacting, walk into a room with strangers, uh, uh, um, we are motively assigning plus, minus, uh, um, or neutral, or dangerous, uh, safe, or uh, or neutral to every human being in the room that you're you're encountering before your mind can ever catch up to it. You so know, there are I, there are I physiologists. Want to something here, and this is uh, uh, self-verifiable. In fact, I've had some very strange experiences in the last few months where I'll. Like it often happens like when I'm looking for something, if I'm looking for like a screw in, a, in what I call my lucky, it's a 
random parts thing I learned from an engineer. You have to have to throw all of your extra parts that can't really be organized in a thing, and you call it the lucky because if you find what you're looking for, you're lucky. And it's a hilarious thing, but there's great things in there. So I was looking through the lucky, this mess of parts that's like four inches deep, and I found what I was looking for, and then and I noticed there was a feeling that I found what I was looking for before the mental registration that I had found what I was looking for. Uh, And I've had this happen a few times. It's very strange where there's this like, there's a yes kind of like, ooh. And then my mind's like, that's the part I'm looking for. And then then I feel like I'm like, why are you saying that? I already know. (laughs) (laughs) But it's because the mind is like so late to the game. It seems like there's this giant gap and I'm having the thought. Yeah. And the thought seems completely superlative or superfluous it's like why am i saying that to myself i already know i found it but then there's this straggling thought that's like oh look you found it I'm like yeah I, f- I knew that a second ago but there was this consciousness knowing or soul knowing or something and then the mind follows and i imagine that could happen quite often yeah beautifully said and what we're talking about here uh, is a little different than what you might think by this statement you can certainly start a moment in your mental body if you want to, uh, when you're uh, focusing on something. We're saying in in the way reality is received by us, mm, yeah, yeah. we're emotive beings first, mental second, much or a willful second actually, because there's a, a, a microsecond where um, you had the feeling, let's use your example with the lucky, you had the feeling uh, uh, and that, then there was a, a micro moment where your will uh, to take to pick up the piece uh, drove you, and then at the microsecond later, the the thought was abstracted. Oh yeah, this is the right one. You yeah, see? where normally you just experience the oh, this is the right one, and not right. the things before it, because right. that's exactly. the conscious personality. Yeah. And if that's true, and we've been testing that, uh, I've been testing it personally for full, almost forty years. Um, that uh, uh, if that's true, it literally, um, uh, uh, um, what's the word, eviscerates virtually every paradigm of human consciousness that's ever been invented. That's not bombast. I'm saying that humbly and as, as factual, and you can, you can ver- verify this yourself if you slow down perception as a, uh, uh, identity uh, can give you many ways to learn to do that. Oh, well, yep. you don't even really have to try at a certain point. It just starts to automatically happen. That's yeah. even more proof because if you were yes. trying to do it, then that would be something else. But the yeah. problem with this is just as you say, it would deconstruct or eviscerate many paradigms, but only after you taught the person how to think paradigmatically to begin with, could they actually <laughs> appreciate how it would do that, which is something I torture oh. myself over about every week. Oh, that's true. I never thought of it really in that 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 sequence. That's exactly right. You can't you can't compare paradigms uh, unless you think paradigmatically and appreciate what a paradigm is, the value system within which your condition that's gotten so deep in you, you don't you can't as very few people can abstract the fact that they're what their conditioning is they just are their conditioning uh the two-thirds of the planet younger souls they just are their conditioning and so this is why identity uh, doesn't serve uh terran souls uh they're the younger they've got their own institutions and their services but older souls who have that capacity who've been around the block 
uh, more than a few hundred times. Uh, they need more. So in this sense, emotional, emotive beings first. Yeah, you want to say something, Joseph? Did you want? Well, I, I I saw this random little Instagram video this morning of a husband sort of derisively teasing his wife, saying he was neurotypical and she was neuroatypical, and uh, they were sort of laughing about it, like, "Oh, we just found out," and she was appropriately sort of mortified and a little annoyed, and he was thought it was hilarious. But one of the pieces of evidence they were talking about was that she had an inner narrator and he thought he didn't and <laughs> and so it makes me think and i have this theory that people who either don't have an inner narrator who is the commentator like now i'm i guess i'll wash dishes now okay i didn't know if i was going to be doing this or not or this needs to be done that inner narrator is it that denser souls either don't have a narrator because there's just so little space in their consciousness that they just who they are and how they're thinking is like the same thing. And so there's not space between the actor and a commentator about the actor. Do you have to be a certain level of porosity to have that? Wonderful question. And I'm, what I'm going to say next could be heard as criticism uh, or elitism by a lot of people. So I'm going to predicate uh -huh. Pavlov has a lot to say about this, uh -huh. right? Uh, animals, Pavlov's dogs, you know, uh, action, reaction. There's no moment in between of consideration that is a dog is aware of that could abstract why it's reacting the next moment. Yeah. You see? So it's the yeah. same principle. It's not uh -huh. we're saying younger souls are animals. We're simply saying as you, as you begin to um, explore what it means to carry around all this roast beef uh, as a downline precipitation of your soul consciousness, uh, you've got to really align yourself with the gravitational field and the density of this, this uh, universe so, such that uh, in younger um, uh, in incarnations, the first 100, 150, exactly what you just said, they're too busy being what they are to abstract that they even have a narrator you yeah. see and so I, I, you're you're right dense is a good word but but a, sl a slightly more heartful one is younger um so it's a uh, function of soul experience and also soul species which yes. have overlap because that's older, right they have the, overlap the, right yeah yeah so we'll yeah and i could tell by looking at them that the yeah. guy quote neurotypical whatever that means uh -huh. was I, I mean i could just read it out like she yeah. was feeling a complex range of emotions and was right. way more sophisticated as a soul and yeah. he was just simpler and yeah. i could just see that and i yeah i almost wrote something and then i just decided that i have bigger problems in my own life to be dealing with than trying to help these people well that yeah. that brings up another beautiful thing joseph or a difficult thing when i first started bringing this forward what one of the most heartbreaking sequelae to it was a how many complex women uh were with simple men uh yeah not just the result of uh, feminism, um, but as a result of how many men uh, are a little less sophisticated emotively and soulfully than women naturally. Yeah. We can get into we can get into that at another moment. Uh, why that is, uh, but but once getting supported, the woman once the woman is supported of emotional first, which is yin first. Mental body abstraction is a yangic thing. Willfulness is yangic. 
and and uh, uh, the physicality of behavior is yogic. But notice all of this, if we're emotive beings first, emotion in, in identity is yinic. As soon as they got verified that that was their natural being, that men just in a large percentage just don't get. Um, they, I, I was presided over so many breakups of complex, soulful women with simpler men, so much so I wrote a song on the piano one day about, about how hard it is for a woman to say goodbye to some, a man they love, but is just not on the same consciousness wavelength as they are. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, so in this sense, uh, women have the leg up on it because yin in our cosmology of things, yin pre pre-existed yang. And that's another story we'll tell in sainthood. Well, we have another, it's a great opportunity to insert yet another enormously bold claim about identity, and that is by virtue of this principle that we're emotive beings first, unless a paradigm holds that we're emotive beings first, and emotivity is yin, without yes. that, the paradigm is by definition patriarchal. Yes. Oh, nice. By definition. Even uh, feminism. Be- Yes, and of course, <laughs> feminism. Feminism became uh, yangically necessi- necess- necessary. Because if it's mind or will or energy first, those are right. yang. It's going to automatically make yang better. It's going to downline make men better, or the woman has to become like a man, as in feminism. Now that that the degree of that patriarchy can differ uh, sure. in different paradigms, but in incontrovertibly in, in if it's not based in emotion first it will be a patriarchal based uh, system that's which is why yeah. yeah that's a bold claim and you don't have to agree with the any... only non-patriarchal paradigm that we know of <laughs> that we know of at the moment yeah. uh because not just because of these premises but because it has a, we built a dharma transfer transmutational dharma based on these principles a lot of a lot of people will have a lot of pictures and great leaders will have pieces of these premises but not the transformative or transmutational dharma to um actually work it uh, so you embody it instead of just not oh that that's feels right you know mm-hmm. how do you embody it beyond the mental body that's the thing here See? Okay, I got to insert a story there now. I'm sorry, it's going to take us forever to get through these 13. But this was, I talked to a guy I met on LinkedIn yesterday, lovely guy, just um, passionate and driven and uh, a, a, originally a scientist who got into the Enneagram. That's how we connected on LinkedIn. And he's in India. And I just thought, yeah, let's let's see if we can chat and learn about some stuff. Turns out he's a big fan of not only the Enneagram, but Jay Krishnamurti. And uh-huh. he's like, I've read everything Jay Krishnamurti has uh, ever written and like, you know, just a really good student. And at a certain point I was like, so have, have you ever meditated? And he's like, yeah, I tried two or three times. It didn't work for me. And I thought like inside I'm going, okay. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. God. So I had this intuition. I'm like, I think this guy's spiritually, psycho-spiritually book smart, but I wasn't sure. So that's why I started asking questions about what he had practiced and then I said, of course, well, what do you think meditation is? And he said something about organizing thoughts. And I'm like, well, this is why people give up meditation because they think- That's not what it is. No, they think it's about clearing their mind and then they fail and feel shame about it and then give up. And it was remarkable to me. It took a, a few different passes for me to impress upon him. Like, so all the stuff you've read that Krishnamurti has written about how we should live and what's important and all that, 
like, you know, that all comes from his enlightenment, right? Like that consciousness, like, aren't you the least bit curious, like what that is to embody that yourself? He's like, no, I've never been interested in enlightenment. And that was so interesting to me. Like this guy really turned himself into a scholar. And I've met a few people like this and they literally, they're, they're doing these paradigms so much in their mental body. These are spiritual and or psychological paradigms. Yes. But they're they're doing their version of it so much in the mental body that they don't even realize that they're just studying a map and not walking the territory at all. Yeah, and that's really difficult to get across to someone. Yeah, because they have no point. reference point. I've met but by people. the end, he got interested in enlightenment, so I pulled it off. <laughs> Good for you, Joseph. Yeah. In other words, they'll study the the effects of these great teachers. Yeah. but not be interested in doing it themselves, embodying it, right? Yeah. And if you don't do that, you're just going to be a head case. And then you could be scholarly and, you know, impress a lot of people, what you know, but that's young, young kinds of learnings that we have to learn. T- there's something deeper to do about embodying them. Yeah. So so that's a, the, uh, the reason I don't care how long this takes us, and I love that you bring in an example for each one or a couple because that okay, brings the rubber to the road here. Um, it goes from intellectuality to applied hu- humanics, you know, uh, really. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, uh, this first premise completely eviscerates every non-dual um, picture uh, uh, tradition that's out there. Theravada uh, Buddhism, Mahayana uh, Buddhism, all, everything is all based on the how the I is just uh, an ephemeral, uh, inner internal um, uh, illusion that's that's simply the mirror of our outer experience, creates an experiencer uh, out of experience. And so, in a really mundane way, it reframes a passing mood or feeling as right. a path to the soul yes. rather than an artifact of mind that isn't significant or a distraction from your faith or, and you know, human feelings are kind of a significant part of the human experience. <laughs> so if you're looking at all of that as just right. something that's in the way of your ability to focus on what's important, yeah, then it's kind of a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. It's- and and the, the, because you brought in um, uh, uh, soul age a few moments ago, uh, uh, it's mostly um, between 100 and 250 uh, lifetimes uh, on the cycle of rebirth that people tend to uh, glom onto mental body representation as reality without getting at the mental body abstracts reality and then logistify a logic logics it through so it doesn't contradict but it's always a representation it's not reality you, that's why you can't like you just said with this gentleman uh, he doesn't embody it in reality he's got it stored in his knowledge base which is all the mental body so write this first one right here if you think that uh, if you really buy into um, any traditional uh, non-dual Eastern esoteric teaching about uh, the non-dual. Um, stick with it till it dead ends for you, really. We're not trying to change your mind, uh, but identity uh, it would offer that um, it's a new game now. Uh, if we're emotional first, then what happens because of that uh, in, in uh, spiritual work 
uh, emotion will be seen as a, as you said a moment ago, as some sort of obstruction to both enlightenment and sagehood and to atonement with God, because hate is the opposite of love, don't you know? Uh, <laughs> right? And it's not. Uh, we'll get into that uh, in our sainthood uh, track. There's another key piece here about um, the difference in psychology because psychology recognizes the unconscious, but they refer to it, I mean, I think in the beginning explicitly with Freud, but when they talk about the unconscious, they're talking about the unconscious mind. Yes. And mm -hmm. they see it as irrational, but still it's the irrational unconscious mind. And so they're attempting to access it through the mind, through mental means, Yes. Like if we can help the patient understand their unconscious yes. mind, yes. then things will at work. And that's what psychoanalysis does, right? Let's just talk and talk and talk and talk and get all of that unconscious stuff out. But yeah. the it's sort of like, um, I'm trying to think of a metaphor. It's sort of like if the unconscious is um, the uh, the water of the ocean and not the air over it, and mm -hmm. you're trying to relate with the air part, like, okay, well, that's territory of the ocean, the air part over it, mm -hmm. but you're not going to actually digest any of the wet stuff because that's mm -hmm. actually, you have, to, you have to meet it where it is. You have to meet emotivity with emotion. Yes. And that's a completely different kind of interaction between the facilitator and the facilitant, uh, using the terms we used to use, in soul yes. mentor and in soul mentee. It's a completely <laughs> different kind of interaction where you're entering into the domain of emotivity as opposed to mentally talking about stuff and making sense of things, which is where um, most therapy hangs out. Exactly. And so that was a beautiful point. In our picture of things, the unconscious is crammed full of wounded emotivity, not mentality. You can be unconscious of that you held something in your mind. Uh, you didn't realize you held that in your mind. This, this, this is not an unhelpful uh, thing. We, sometimes we will uncover downline stuff where the reason an emo a wounded emotion that was driving behavior, for example, uh, there was always an associated mental body um, yes or no to it. And getting those yes and no's comes out of actually baking the emotive access first. We don't try to unearth the mental misunderstandings in the unconscious, but they, they will unfold themselves if you aim deeper. So mm -hmm. in that sense, uh, everyone out there mostly, um, especially in ma mass consciousness therapy, uh, motions are just a part of the mind. They're, they're a subset of the mind, whereas we would say no. Um, just in your first example with your, your little lucky bin, uh, we, are, we are relating to reality emotively first, which means willfulness and mentality are aspects of emotivity, not the yeah, other way around. If emotions are an aspect of mind, then in yeah. a therapeutic set setting, you're looking for ventilation. Yes, You're looking for right. reframing opportunities, finding <laughs> distorted thoughts and beliefs, and right. ventilation of emotion that might be mixed up in it. But we try to go far. We aim. I love that you said that a moment ago. We aim for deeper than that. Um, yeah. And how do you describe emotivity? Um, you know, that's a difficult one because you have to be able to feel it. It's the fourth chakra that can detect yes. whether it's emotive or not. Exactly right. Uh, and that's a beautiful way to put it too, Joseph. Um, you will feel this. And 
we, we're all conditioned, and I think, therefore, I am, or I'm a body-mind, therefore, I am, I is not, or uh, I am unworthy before God, therefore, I am worthy to God, uh, in these other domains. As soon as you make emotivity more pri more primary aspect of human consciousness, it changes it changes how you evaluate everything, everything. And our our, our lead off one here is that will and mind and body are all downline versions of emoto soulful reality. We'll we'll expand that as we go through here. Mm -hmm. So this comes out of one of the tripods, uh, the one of the three legs, the one leg of we're all responsible for our uh, content of our unconscious. Now we can add a little parenthetical note. We are all responsible for the emotive wounded aspect of our uh, aspects of our unconscious. Uh, and so that's number one. If that we we could spend like we could spend a whole a whole uh, podcast on each one of these. I want to try to get through at least half of these today. Right. But the next but the next one um, goes right flows right out of this. That all human activity is compro comprised of four elements. Oh, wait, so you said oh no, you said the first one is emotive. Where emotive means first, and we're responsible for the contents of those that you're putting those two together. I'm not not in the framework. Oh, okay. uh, the, the ones at a level of the basic uh, paradigmatic assumptions. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. That's, little... I see. That's a sequelae of it. Is the yeah, exactly. For that. Gotcha. Yes. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Four elements uh, of human behavior, right? Yes. Um, there is m m motivation, unconscious motivation, then conscious intention, then action based on the uh, uh, intention. And then the outcome of the behavior that operates on the intention. 95% uh, of our uh, institutionalized and therapeutic orientations, even spiritual ones, do not all, or they all start with intentions, conscious intentions, landmark, landmark. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. If you were given a million dollars to be on time, uh, would yes. you think that you could be on time? You know? Yeah. And this uh, comes from behaviorism because yes. it's not really esoteric or original psychology. It comes from hmm, what can we use to control the right. unconscious by focusing more on intention? And then that became, that's yeah. just how it is. No, that was behaviorism. It started in the 1920s and became very popular because control loves behavioristic psychology. It's yes. a way of, it's like, um, it reminds me of, this is a little esoteric uh, reference, um, the difference between jujitsu and Aikido. Jujitsu will oh, go yes. with the opponent just enough to do something to them. Mm -hmm. But true, a true internal martial art goes with and goes with and goes with and finds a harmonious outcome. You're not doing something to them. Uh -huh. um, so behaviorism goes with the unconscious just enough to be able to control it, which to me oh. is kind of aggressive yeah. feeling aggressive Younger. that's not love Younger. yeah no that's not love no aikido has way more love to it uh even if it has some pain associated. well and then even among aikido there's so many different schools of it i came from a very love-based ones but there's plenty that have a lot of control in it um, yeah. still unsurprisingly so if this is true and identity offers it's every one of these are self-verifiable so please hear that we, we don't want anyone to believe this we want you to test it and see if it works for you uh, unlike any other paradigm that says we here's the absolute truth if you don't you won't see it till you believe it and we would say no 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 you won't uh, see it till you feel it uh, mm -hmm. which is a whole other paradigm of experience so if if there is this 
if there's a step before conscious intention, uh, why we say why is what's that uh, that 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 old uh, scene? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Exactly. Why does that happen? Well, we have an answer. There's an unconscious emotional wound-based motive that will filter our conscious intention, and then we'll operate on that conscious intention with an action and an outcome. And we and we uh, we we were off base right from the get go because we didn't realize what what configured our conscious intention. Um, Scientologist Tom Cruise doesn't doesn't worry about emotionally uh, flavored unconscious motives for his conscious intentions of willfulness to manifest his will in every moment of time. Um, so there there is a beautiful example of a, a pseudo spiritual teaching that is actually just based in uh, um, intention uh, and then using will, which is not even our primary aspect of consciousness, to create outcomes that uh, fulfill your own goal, which is also configured by um, our unconscious motives. In other words, if we're if we're if we were did never got fed in childhood with real bandwidths of love, we are constantly going to be trying to trying to manifest good moods, good feelings. Uh, uh, we'll get to happiness later on in the yeah, podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we'll try to control our ways to um, to our out desired outcomes, and that Scientology is that on 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 steroids. Tony Robbins uh, on steroids. Uh, it's all about your intention and then putting all of your will and mind behind your goal. And sometimes when I'm introducing this to people, I'll say, so tell me about a time when you had an intention, a very strong intention, and it didn't come to fruition in outcome. Or, you know, you didn't take the actions or you did, but it didn't get to outcome. What is, how did you explain that to yourself that that didn't happen? Yes. And what you inevitably hear is a bunch of excuses, you know, the most responsible of which is going to be like, I wasn't committed enough. Yes, right. And then it's like, well, why not? Right. Mm -hmm. So in the domain of attentionality, the only the that their hammer is will. So it's yeah. like if something gets in the way, then I'll just double down on my will a little harder. Or but, you know, in Landmark and I imagine in some of the other similar paradigms, they'll do this thing where they'll sort of dip lightly into the unconscious. Like if there is a, uh, a thwarted intention, what Landmark would say is look for the inauthenticity, uh -huh. which would be like, was there some hidden inauthenticity in there? Like I was afraid of failure or I was resenting this person, so I didn't want it to succeed. And so they would say like, oh, no, no, we're looking at the unconscious. But that's like having your you know, heels in the ocean and saying you've explored its depths. It's like, well, yeah. great, but there's way more to it. And just like yeah. a lot of forms of jujitsu, they, they use the unconscious just enough to try to aerate it so that yeah. they can cram some more will into the system and get the thing to happen. Uh, beautiful. I know said. that shit well because I did it for a number of years. <laughs> yeah, um, this the uh, some sort of anti-outcome agenda that the unconscious would have. 
But, yeah. but we would say, well, why is that there in the first place? Why and, is it anti, right? And then it yes. hits the inauthenticity is bad, <laughs> oh, bad. Yeah. It's a bad motive instead of like, well, why is it there? And what's the good reasons for it? Because it comes from a wound inevitably. And if you yeah. don't yet experience it as being there for a good reason, then there's no way it's healed. Yeah, Because that's exactly. what healing is by our definition. And our, and our definition of healing anyway, yeah. for us, Along these lines, for these first two assumptions, uh, what is called healing out there is just symptom abatement. Uh, it's not causal transmutation of the consciousness being. And so uh, that's good for younger souls. They, you know, when I was unfolding this in the 80s, when Tony and his um, and his uh, running over hot coals was uh, all the rage, mm. um, these people are proving to themselves that uh, uh, they can bear it, um, they can accomplish, they can overcome, they've overcame a fear. And all only people who are insecure in their emotional self-worth would need to prove that to themselves, which, which is fine, okay. Right. But one I wish, I wish that was quotes. made patent. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes of yours is, the quest for power is proof of its lack. Yes, yes. Any quest for power means you don't have it. Um, a person who's got inner inner power on the healthy side, we call strength. Mm -hmm. If you have inner strength, you never seek power. You never seek it. So, um, you know, all we would say is you've gained uh, for a young soul who learned to run on hot coals and then everybody toasts them as what a courageous person. They're just so young that they, they don't, don't realize how deeply sophisticated our capacity for consciousness is. And they're just staying way they're just surfing on this on the surface of of uh, their own souls when they do that the the seeking of power is proof of its lack and uh the orange man of course in our present day is uh, the perfect uh, uh a perfect metaphor for that so unconscious motivations well both, are both of our candidates at uh what uh, are they 79 and 82 or something like, something like I that i think about yeah. that almost every day like you know I've been wanting to write a blog about this. Like, can you feel that in Trump or Biden that their desire to have perhaps one of the most difficult jobs in the world, certainly one of the most important, is certainly in the country, is it coming from a cup runneth over dynamic where they just, their lives are so together, they just are moved to serve, right? And and they're wanting to work. And then c c compare that with like um, uh, Patrick Stewart, who still was playing Jean-Luc Picard at 82. Yeah. And so it's not about an age thing. You can no. feel that he loves what he does and he doesn't want to stop and he can still do it well. And yeah. that is not the case for Biden or Trump. <laughs> no. They're not moved by their own, you know, um, soulful expression and wanting to share themselves with the world. You can just see it. That's not what's going on. I saw, I'm, I'm really sorry, my brain has been racking since you started this line. Uh, there was a wonderful thing I saw, uh, an explication, a documentary about um, the ability to um, measure whether or not a person is suited for a, a particular um, job, like the presidency that you're saying. And this person did a deep dive uh, in a short documentary about how uh becoming uh oh what was it i forget some department head in the pentagon had a, a hundred times more um uh, uh um check boxes that had to be checked oh, off 
than the president. Then the pres there is none for the president. Well, you just there's, have to get elected, right? Yeah, there's all no criteria you have to at all. Do <laughs> is know how to pull people to you for some reason. There's yeah. no there's it's well you have to be 35 to, and you have to be an American citizen. That's it. Those are the only criteria. <laughs> there's no evaluation of responsibility of hidden yeah. motives. There's no psychological measurement uh, that says you're suited for this job. I mean, it, it is unbelievable. And, and just that one example that to be in a department head in the Pentagon, uh, 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 not even one that's relative to the armed forces, but just an yeah, organizer I, of a yeah, to work at Yeah, to work at most fast food restaurants, you have to get a drug test. I don't think you even have to do that as a president. And yeah. and we discovered you don't have to release your tax returns either. No, so, no. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. This is why we say that the tail is wagging the dog of humanity mm -hmm. here. Um, really, we have people in leadership positions that I are so chock full of unconscious, wounded unconscious motives that they're leading us into narrower, narrower uh, uh, passageways of consciousness, not wider and bigger ones. And the fact is that a, a deeply spiritual person who goes, goes through a lot of transmutational stuff is just not interested in the power game that politics is. We're just not, we're just not in. I, in college, uh, uh, I had uh, the, the, um, the, the, uh, uh, head of the polit political science department. I don't know how he heard about me, but he he found me in the, my biological track. Uh, I was pre-med uh, in, mm -hmm. in university. And uh, he said, some people have been telling uh, me about, uh, telling him about me. And and then he interviewed me and he said, you you need to be in poli-sci. You're, you're a born, you're a born leader. You should, if you turned your talents to, um, you have you have a human uh, warmth to your, your, um, your, your, your being and you're, you're smart and, but you're not, you don't wield your smarts with a, a hammer. Uh, he said, you get into poli sci, forget this medical stuff. You're wasted there. And I even had people wanting me to run for a, a student uh, president in, uh, in, in Lo at Loyola university, whatever they called it then, not president. Uh, so the point here is that in politics, there's just no substantive requirement that you be sane at all for the president and that's mm -hmm. true for every great uh, all leaders in the in the world right now the wet the, the tail the, is mitch mcconnell the mitch mcconnell right now is like on a weekly basis having like partial seizures on national television and uh yeah. diane feinstein was in office until 90 90 yeah. 90 something 90 like right. you know ruth bader ginsburg it's just the the transparency with which these people are motivated by power rather than service is just it's embarrassing. It's, it's embarrassing, and I think it was uh, was it Nikki Haley who don't even get me started. But she said something like uh, the presidency is um, is uh, like a uh, with these two guys uh, in one way is like um, a perfect example of a of a, of a retirement home, you know. <laughs> Uh, where they're actually not really suited, their cognitive uh, abilities and uh, critical thinkings are all backwards. And so, um, yeah, it's easier to get an office job at the Pentagon than, than it is. Uh, you have to go through way more evaluation than virtually harder, nothing. Harder, harder, you mean? Harder, yes, sorry. Harder, yeah. oh, sorry, harder. Right, exactly right. I mean, you, you do have to spend a lot of money and get a lot of votes to become president, but Criteria-wise, there's a lot more boxes to check for many oh my other God. jobs.
Oh my God. Anyway, um, that leads us right to the third one. Um, mm. And this is, a, this is a paradigm buster too. There's no such thing as a negative emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, just think of how many places, niches <laughs> in our wor uh, human world that negative emotion is a given. It's just a given. It's become so conditioned into our consciousness that we think it's, not, it's beyond question. If we're emotive beings first, then a negative emotion is a messenger in its basic uh, being. And how is that negative? It's alerting us to the fact that we've got issues in our unconscious that are unhealed. A negative emotion is simply a cry, a messenger saying, help, uh, I, 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 I can't do this right now, so I'm going to negativize it's going gonna, it's gonna to stop my functionality if I drop into my negative emotion of depression or a negative emotion of, of anxiety. And of course, we've got the big farm right in there to close that hole in the dam right there uh, because anxiety and depression can be debilitating. That's right. But this world is based on functional functionality, not right. on authenticity. Right. And it's so it's it's so fascinating too because it there's just such a all it requires is a little bit of nuance. Like yeah, yeah. If, if your posture is bad and it causes headaches, is the headache bad? Mm -hmm. Like it feels bad, yeah. but does that mean it's essentially bad, right? Back to yeah. essence, form, and expression. Exactly. It, in expression, it's not nice to feel, you don't enjoy it. But right. it's a message that is telling you that you should do something about po about your posture before you've you know cause long term permanent damage to your spine. Yes. So in in essence, it's good because, like you said, it's a messenger, and that's such a simple thing to do. Like, the, is a cramp bad? It's telling you maybe you need some more minerals, or you need to take a break. Is you know or. Uh, eye strain is that bad maybe it's telling you you need to take a break or that you need glasses it's just we go so quickly to oh if it feels bad that's bad get rid of it mitigate it do something to it um rather than to get curious yeah and the one metaphor uh that really captures all of that is the belly ache right thank mm. god we have stomach aches to tell us something is wrong say it mm -hmm. that way right yeah and and, and identity goes one further in this worldwide illusion about negative emotions and that is that um only a child thinks something is bad if it feels bad or good right. if it feels good only right. a child is that so just because it feels bad it's a good thing that um rehab uh, from alcoholism feels bad it's good because you're recovering you're recovering so Anyone that, that, that if, if adult can't see that sometimes uh, feeling good, bad is a good thing and sometimes feeling good is a bad thing, like an addict, right. get to someone who's on, on heroin, um, they feel great, uh, but that's a bad thing. So why are we stuck, and, and identity can answer this question, why are we stuck in childish, not childlike, childish states of consciousness because we've got unhealed children inside us not mm -hmm. not uh, just um uh, the old 70s and 80s inner child 
paradigm. That's not what we're talking about. But we have young aspects in us that are wounded. And when they're wounded, they are stuck. And so if you're an adult, if adult orients to, if it, if it feels bad, it is bad. If it feels good, it is good. They're just trumpeting the fact that they're about emotionally about eight years old. You know, I was or, once, or younger. One of the last Facebook uh, debates I engaged in years ago was when someone, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, posted something and somebody wrote, I forget what it was, but they wrote something like, um, looking at this aspect of reality in this way makes me feel powerful, so that's what I'm going with. And I, and I just couldn't help myself. I said, so oh. I just sort of, I did the oh. reframe. I was like, so if it makes you feel good, then that means it's true. You know, like what about how an addict feels? You know, like that's their yeah. feeling too. I got dog piled on so fast. Like literally 25 people were like, seems like you need to be right. And why are you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like I get so much so that I actually had to have a conversation with the colleague about like, dude, why didn't you step in here? And he's like, that's yeah. none of my business. And one of the commenters, or I think maybe the original commenter was his wife. And she got really nasty with me. And at one point, I'll never forget this because I knew it was the end of the, that conversation. He said, um, well, she's my wife. So of course, I'm going to take her side. And I was oh, like, what? What? <laughs> what? what? Really? <laughs> Is that how committed you are to truth? Like, so if she's completely wrong, you're still gonna take her side because she's your wife. Thanks. Yeah, it's like that was what I was like. That's it. No more debates on Facebook. I'm done. Uh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, that you simply cannot ever um, get to have a dialogue with someone who already believes they have absolute truth. Uh, that's yeah. just it. That's just absolute it. wife truth, whatever she wife says. truth, whatever that truth. means. It, another example of the trailing edge of humanity wagging the dog of our leading edge of yeah. consciousness, leading edge, trailing edge. Uh, we, we don't try to um, uh, uh, negativize the trailing edge, we tr and we don't try to make it less, and we'll talk about this next time, we don't try to make your wounds less, we make them, we, we give them room to be exactly what they are, and we support the leading edge in that to get bigger, rather than shrink the trailing edge. Now, the trailing edge will move forward in, in, in that maturity, but they never have to do change, especially our protector who protects these wounded sub-personas. So in that sense here, um, there's no such thing as a negative emotion. The last point I want to make about it is people think uh, the opposite of, of love is hate. Um, mm. and, and we simply shake our heads at the tail wagging the dog on that one too, that you absolutely, not absolutely, but this is self-verifiable. It's such an old saw. Hate is simply uh, a function of you being outraged about something you love. You can't hate unless you love the thing that is somehow an injustice thing or a cruelty thing. If you'll just dig, scratch a little bit before, behind the, 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 the emotion of hate. Uh, well, because every you'll, no you'll is a yes. Every, oh, that's another whole thing we could spend so much time on. A no is just an, a positive affirmation of a negative. Uh, it's like yin, yang is derivative of yin, uh, no's are derivative of yes. Uh, yes is the ultimate everything, and a no is simply an affirmation of a contrary opinion. It's, it's still a yes. 
a no is always a yes to something else. So in that sense, uh, how, how, how is it, why is it that these first three um, uh, assumptions we were motive beings first before anything else that it's got the four elements of motivation and motivation under intention and that there's no such thing as negative emotion why have we been led the opposite of of these three and that's the next one is mm. the core of effective parenting gives children the experience that a parent feels what they're feeling while they're feeling it and why they're feeling it no matter what you've read in any parenting uh, handbook, it's not about being doing something different. It's about being a different kind of person with your child, not doing different. It, all a child needs, if, if we are emotive beings first, children are the most pure versions of emotivity. Before they ever acquire, let's just go developmentally, before they ever develop the mental body, in their in their from infancy on they are emoting every single moment and that's Why? experienceable too i it, about a year into ebe when i first started um i had the first experience of an infant i just felt the love that they were from like yeah. 10 feet away it's like a breeze you just feel yes. it in your heart um, before oh. that i did not it took me a year of work to experience that thanks for saying that um this is self-verifiable uh, when, it, when, it, when, how many times have we talked about where an infant Stopping in a stroller. Stopping babies from crying. Yeah. No, the, 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 the Oh yeah. They, 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 they stare. They, yeah. They stare. Because yeah, because what happens is like, I'll, I, it happens to me at Whole Foods a lot. Um, I'll be sitting there eating and a parent will go by with a kid and I feel the breeze before I even see the kid, I'll feel the breeze of love go into my heart and be like, what is that? And I look up and then there's a baby and they feel yeah. being let in possibly for the first time. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately, at least to that degree. And it's 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 weird. It's like it's it's passive. The letting in, it's just an open heart lets in that. Yes. And because uh, infants uh, and young children are so unprotected, they can't hold back the love that they are. They're not protected yet. So they yes. just pour into you like a liquid and then they mm -hmm. their eyes are like, oh, my God, what is going on? And the worst part is the parent usually doesn't even notice that, that no. all that's going on. When that's what no. they're supposed to be giving by our definition, they're supposed to be giving that experience to that infant all the time. 100%. So what we're saying is no human child in the history of, let's say it the most uh, bombastic way, no human child in the history of humanity has ever gotten what they needed in childhood. Not because parents don't love them, not because parents don't want to do the best by their children. It's because they themselves never got, uh, parents never got what they needed in childhood and, and their parents never got what they, it's just a, a motosoulful virus that's been handed down for the last uh, 100,000 years. What we're saying here is, imagine how present in the heart you have to be as a parent to feel a child in distress, what they're feeling while in the, in real time, they're feeling it, not tomorrow, not a year or not 30 years later. Oh, that's must've been what you were feeling then um, while they're feeling it and why they're feeling it. If you're a parent out there, 
and your kids have grown up, have you been able to do that with all your, with your children every second of your life with them? What they're feeling, while they're feeling it, and why they're feeling, can you give them that moment? The best example is my own here. Uh, I was bullied a lot in, uh, in school, and I've used this uh, experience before in other podcasts, and uh, I got really beat up badly uh, at one point in my life. I was uh, 11 or 12 and uh, 12 and uh, uh, almost had a detached retina uh, from getting pounded on a big guy just pounding into my eye. And uh, when I went, when I went home, bruised and bloody and black eye and bloody mouth, uh, uh, the other guy looked just as bad, by the way, uh, this big guy, I got him pretty good too. But I, I staggered into my house and my father looked at me, what happened? Well, I was just in a fight. Well, We've got, to, we've got to take you to karate now uh, so this never happens again. That was his form of love. So did he love me in that moment? Yeah, he didn't want to ever want me to get beat up again. But what I needed in that moment was, wait, wait, what happened? How, how did the fight start? Well, I said this and he said that and and, uh, and there were girls uh, watching us fight. And after he was bigger than me and jumped on me, it was really, a, you know, I really felt ashamed uh, in front of girls to get beat up by this dumb guy, this gorilla. Uh, and so what I needed in that moment, no, my parents did not ask me, well, how did that feel to lose a fight? I had many fights before where I won the fight, but this one was the first one I ever lost. And they didn't. They went, my father went right to solution, thinking that that was all he could do, bless his heart. But what I needed was a mother and father in that moment to feel what I was feeling, shame and defeat and, and unworth, while I was feeling it in that moment, and why? And why? Because I the situation of the social dynamic at that time, I felt uh, like um, uh, I was embarrassed that I lost. Look what covers the love intention of my father. Let's take you to, we'll, we'll find some money, we'll scrape together and send you to karate. That's the solution. That's the form the love takes. Situational offsetting. Content. Not content. Well, yeah, yeah interestingly, it, because we have this, it's a great example of the content versus context um, sort of fusion to content problem we have as a society. The assumption is the trauma is in content, therefore the solution is in content. Yes, right. And that's um, right. The the lack of feeling felt in, in, for identity that's the trauma. Yes, it's the not the content of, of whatever happened to you. It's right. the context of whatever happened to you couldn't digest all the yes. way. Yes, and um, therefore there's a completely different rubric for healing. Yes, and, and parenting for that matter. That is what crams full the emotional unconscious. All those moments that we didn't get felt, not it wasn't because we weren't lectured or properly, it weren't because mommy and daddy weren't, oh, empathetic. We weren't felt in the depth of our emotive being based on the fact that we're emotive beings first. So if we're emotive beings first and we're not felt, Right out of the get-go, we're going to have a twisted, undigested trauma. And this is why we say, as Joseph just said in, in personal work, it's not trauma. It's not trauma that causes our issues in, in, in adulthood. 
It's the lack of emotively digesting our trauma that has caused yeah. all of our stuff in adults. I have a memory. I don't know if I've shared it on this podcast before. I, my first girlfriend I had in sixth grade, I was 12. And um, after a few months, she broke up with me as you would in middle school via a note given to me by her friend of hers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I don't think, I think I got it at the end of school. And I, I but anyway, I, was, I remember being home in the afternoon and really upset about it. And my mother asked me what I was upset about. And I can't remember. I think I handed her the note and I was just a mess. I was really, I was just weeping. And I remember vividly that she said a few things like, oh yeah, that's too bad. And I, I remember wanting something from her and I didn't know what it was. Oh yeah. Right. And I remember the, the, the her being like, she had this head shaking, shrugging thing that she would do. Like, as if to say, that's all I got. I don't really know what you need. And I vividly remember that because it, like, I felt it. It was like, oh, that's the last time I'll bring any tears to my parents. Like I, something closed in me in that moment where I was adult enough to realize I can't, there's something that's supposed to be happening here. I don't know what it is, but it's not. And yeah. that was like the last time I opened up to my parents emotionally ever. Like that was it. So... If you've just heard what Joseph just revealed there so heartbreakingly in a way for me to hear, uh, just imagine there are 10,000, 100,000 moments in yeah. your childhood that you weren't felt appropriately because bless their hearts, they're doing the best they did, they could do, but there were no one's ever taught them this premise. And it's around 12 where you finally have enough self to be like, yes. you know what, this isn't working for me. Prior to 10, right. you keep trying. Yeah, you just keep trying. Because yeah. you, you don't have a strong enough protector or a sense of self. Certainly in the first three years, you don't even realize, well, in the first three or five years, you're, you're bringing that emotion in order to land. And when it doesn't, it's not just neutrally unpleasant. You blame yourself for it. Yes. Because the, because the bad feeling of that and your own badness become one thing. And so it takes all the way to 12 before you go, yeah, I guess I can't really relate with my parents. And then we think, oh, well, I've decided that's a self-empowered thing to oh. think. I'll just not bring, not throw my pearls at swine and I'll be fine. Yeah, you would be, except for in your unconscious, you've been trying that for 12 years. And now you've only just realized that it hasn't been working and it's all still stored in your unconscious emotivity, unfortunately. Meaning everything that Joseph just said, is still pivoting on our first assumption that we're emotive beings first. Right. This, what we are talking about here is only made patent uh, because of that assumption. If you, if you define the essence of human consciousness differently than mental, physical, or willful, uh, you've got a whole other reality of human consciousness that unfolds itself to be self-verified. And you know, Joseph, uh, this is so wonderful. Um, these 13 premises, I used to do a, a Friday night, a whole day Saturday, and a whole day Sunday seminars just on these 13 mm -hmm. and have people in the audience bring examples and, to help them uncoil what this assumption might mean for them or should have meant for their childhood, for example. So this is what we mean by the emotive unconscious. It's chock full of hundreds of thousands of moments 
100,000 moments, let's just say, uh, where you were not met in your heart by their parent, no matter how much they loved you. That's just not in our world culture, this kind of definition of love. And if this doesn't happen, let's go to number four. We're going to take nine we're going to do nine uh, uh, podcasts here, three for each hood. Uh, I thought that I, was four, the feeling felt thing. I thought that was number four. Uh, that was four. I want to go okay. to five okay. just to mention it, and then we'll build on it next time. Okay. If you don't have parents that feel what you're feeling while you're feeling it and why you're feeling it, and so bond at the level of heart and, in, by extension, soulfully with your child, then what's going to happen, your emotive body wounding, which is going to be shoved down into your unconscious by a protector, which we'll talk about later, is going to take the form of conscious and specific narratives in your emotional body uh, that sort out um, in, in a developmental sequence with correlating protective defenses as the architecture of our unconscious shadow and unconscious motivations. Those developmentally, I'll just want to do um, name them and we'll go into what it means next time. And that is that first, if we're not felt what we're feeling, while we're feeling it, and why we're feeling it, we are hurt. We're hurt. There's pain. There's pain. If those moments keep happening, those keep happening, then what happens when the hurt unfolds into is anxiety um, because you're going to be anticipating the next moment of hurt. Now, if, the, if you keep anticipating the next moment of hurt and they keep coming, <laughs> in spite of where you're, you're anticipating it, yep, oh, there it is again. There's another one. There's another one. When you've got uh, compiling unprocessed hurt and anxiety, this is uh, rage. This is where rage comes. It's the terrible twos. The hurt and anxiety are already happening from birth until age two. Yeah. Call that uh, rage, not anguish or anger? Uh, anguish or anger is the healthy version of it. Where I'm calling the wounded version of it rage. Okay. That's just to make the, that clear. Okay. But you okay. use hurt and anxiety so far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hurt and anxiety is going to compile to acting out the terrible twos, which is okay. rage. That's okay. what I mean by rage. It's an acting out. The terrible twos are not just because the child is frustrated. The, the, there's been so many hurt and anxiety moments that the only way to communicate something's bad going on in here is rage, the tantrum, the tantrum, the energetic of rage, the tantrum. Uh, most of the time, uh, even if you just do a timeout with a child for a tantrum, it's not going to get down to the level of, felt of the hurt and anxiety that led up to it. But then, right. by calling it rage, you're, that would make it unhealthy, though. You're not, you're, you're not referring to that as healthy anger. Um, I'm 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 referring to it as as energetic, not emotive. Okay. Okay. Energetic. Okay? okay, that's what I mean by rage. Uh, it's an energetic form of ang anguish, mm -hmm. hurt, hurt and anxiety, anguish. That's okay. what it is in its in its reality. Thank, no, thanks. No, that was clarifying. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and so. Even if you give a timeout to a child, um, it's it's punitive. Uh, yeah. And 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 and, the, and even if it's a mild punitivity like a timeout, um, you just invalidated all the hurt and anxiety, the anguish and pain that led up to the tantrum, 
right? So, but that's just the best parents. The medium parents punish you for tantruming or talking back or sassing. Rage back at you. Rage back at you. And that's where it get it all mixed up. The, the healthy uh, tantruming of energetics, uh, you acquire the rage of the parent goes in there at the same time. So it gets all mixed up. Well, this happens over and over again, almost done here in the sequence, uh, over and over again. Eventually, by the time you're uh, 11, 12 years old, um, You've learned to repress, act nice, make mommy and daddy like you, not uh, dislike you, not punish you. That is a strategic birth of our agenda-based protector who wants to be liked by mommy and daddy and accepted and loved and not, and not get pissed off by reactions from them. So we shrink to fit to get mommy and daddy's uh, attention and love. Well. You do that and you've just created an inauthentic version of ourselves by necessity to survive. And this is why there's so much depression that arises in, in teenage times. Uh, depression is the repression of healthy anguish uh, or, or the energetic uh, acting out. It, it means you've tried everything. You even shrunk to fit to get mommy and daddy's love and attention. It still doesn't work. You still don't feel felt by them. Depression is what happens. Why there's so many so much depression in 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 uh, in, teen, in teen, teen, teen years in teen years. Medicating with, now with social media in our generation, it was marijuana was the, and, uh, and alcohol were the best uh, meds for the depression. Well, I think and those fine. are still popular among teens. Yeah, they <laughs> social are. media they notwithstanding. Are. Yeah, yeah, notwithstanding. And lastly. Uh, after you do your meds and realize that that was just putting off what really is still going on inside you, you start to become um, blaming yourself that why can't, why, what's wrong with me that I don't get along in life? What's wrong with me that I don't feel connected to people? What's wrong with me? Well, since, since the control came in uh, between, uh, I, I neglected control. After the rage, you can shrink to fit. We have to control ourselves to, to shrink to fit. Even controlling, shrinking to fit doesn't work. Even even uh, uh, taking these meds in, in our teen years doesn't fit. We start to then contract on ourselves. It's all my fault. That goes shoved to the unconscious too. So these are the subpersonal in a developmental sequence, how hurt, anxiety, um, uh, uh, we'll use your term here, uh, anguish, um, which is tantruming and energetically, uh, um, control, depression, and shame of self. These are the emotive-based subpersonal narratives that exist in our unconscious, uh, our emotive-based unconscious. And those are treated, as we'll get to in the next and the one after, I think three it'll take, in the Dharma of uh, EBE to uh, be attended to with the protector, a much bigger um, way of uh, working with the protector positively as it was in 1.0. So in this sense, all, each one of these uh, five, um, un or the two, three, and four, two, three, four, and five, all unfold from number one, all of these 13. If you don't really self-verify one day that we're emotive beings before we're anything else, none of this becomes necessary. Live your life however you like, but this is something all based in my love of children and how they're the only real victims in life, victims of parents who mostly didn't have a clue and 
even though it's not their fault they didn't have the clue a clue they're responsible for it that's another piece here we'll get to next time right okay so So, um we're a third of the way through more yeah not bad not bad not bad um i'm glad we got to give them their due depth so we'll continue this list next time and uh preview for number six um number six is the most pervasive human drug (laughs) of our species is happiness happiness that is the sacred cow we want to literally deconstruct and see that it's a pile of pig manure uh uh, and so happiness is the the drug of choice uh that all other drugs more more um substantive drug uh that's the state that drugs real drugs serve is the the the, uh, the fact that we want to be happy uh it's uh this is if you don't see it as the most pervasive contextual drug, then you will treat uh, your human, your humanity in ways that in the end are just all symptoms, not causal healings. So, so between now and our next episode, you can start working on forgiving yourself for your inability to be happy because it is, it is not your fault. It's not the point of your existence. So you can start yes. taking that in. more on that next time. Righto. Thank you, Stace. Thank you, listeners. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey.